I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I've just been talking with our, our speaker tonight. One of the peculiarities of archaeology that he reminded me of is that we assume the past is the past, and after we've done a century or two of archaeology, we assume that our knowledge of the past is our knowledge of the past, and that's that. It doesn't work that way. Um, we've barely touched the past. We have done tiny amounts of digging and tiny amounts of places and then formed these huge speculations about what actually happened, what our story is actually made of. And because the instruments keep getting better, the theories are getting better, we'll hear some good ones tonight, uh, there are more and more archaeologists out there digging, uh, we, keep find, we keep retelling the story of how we got here. And this is not going to stop. What we're <laughs> the history of humanity, interestingly enough, is not only is our future a work in progress, our past is a work in progress. Please welcome Sander Vandeleu. Close. Well done. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I can't see any of you because the light is too strong, but that's maybe a good idea. Uh, you'll have to uh, find your own reactions to this. What I like about the way Stuart just introduced me is that indeed one of the things I'm going to try and do is give a different, very personal reassessment of a couple of million years of human history up to a fairly recent present. I'm clearly going to do that in very large steps. And there are some underlying ideas that I'll try and bring to the fore, which I think have direct relevance for what is happening at present. Uh, this is where I'm going to start. And I'm going to start here for two reasons. This is a series of three little slides that posits a problem that you all know very well and that has to do with sustainability. And I'm putting that in there because I think my own perspective as an archaeologist has given me a very different sense of what sustainability is all about than what a lot of people have. I have come to that topic because as an archaeologist I was asked in the early 90s by the European Union to do a project on modern land use problems and the relationship in particular between towns and rural communities. And I did that for 10 years with a wonderful team of about 60 scientists from all over Europe, which was basically having my own private university and organizing my own courses the way I would like them and to see what I could learn. So what I'm presenting here is a mixture of ideas that come out of archaeology and ideas that come out of the study of the present, and what I'm going to try and do is bring all of this together. It's very much a work in progress, and so there may be moments where I uh, do a hiccup or something like that, but we'll see how far I can get. 
These images speak more or less for themselves. On the left-hand top side, you see uh, an evolution of U.S. GDP. Uh, below it, world wealth in deciles per continent. And then on the top right, uh, a sense, and the, top, and the bottom right as well, of where wealth is actually going in the present time. And I'm simply putting that as one of the main issues that we have to deal with. The result of that is this. This is a graph that many of you will have seen. It comes from Will Steffen's work. And it is basically a call to arms for the sustainability movement. And it takes a very wide range, because this is only two of the graphs that he has, and basically shows the acceleration of the sustainability problems that are hitting us in every which direction. Whether it's the damming of rivers, uh, climate, uh, pollution of the earth, of the ocean, and so on and so forth. And very recently, I've had the good fortune to participate in a paper that takes the whole sustainability issue out of climate change alone and basically argues that there are a number of other dimensions where the Earth is just as much under threat of destabilizing itself due to our influence. And some of those are mentioned on the right-hand side. So that, to me, is the backdrop, and I will only come back to that at the end of my talk when I'm talking about maybe ways in which we could do something about this. But let's look at archaeology for a moment and look at what is your favorite topic, the long term. There's a number of reasons from my perspective to actually look at very long-term dynamics. And this comes out of the work I did in Southern Europe. If you don't, as most of us don't, you miss a whole package of dynamics that are ultimately of great importance. Moreover, what you don't do is to observe complete cycles of change. If you have the models that now drive our economies, whether it's the World Bank or the government or somebody else, we basically look back for about 100 years, maybe 200 years, to numerical data. And we observe a very narrow part of the total system behaviors that could have happened. And more than that, we actually observe a highly biased part that is biased towards all the things that have been going on recently. But to me, more important than anything else as an archaeologist is that we forget to observe the change of change. We don't observe how processes themselves change. And in my own work over the last 20 years, that has in many ways become the most important lesson of long-term thinking. Archaeology does this, and as Stuart just said, it does it very, uh, in a very fragmented way. It has a lot of trouble doing it. But it has also a couple of major advantages. Most of the climate data is data that doesn't take any humans or animals or plants very much into consideration because it is polar data and it goes through the gas phase of the atmosphere. There are very rare sites, and one of those we are currently, and when I say we, it is people in my department, are currently digging on the south coast of uh, South Africa, where we have 300,000 years in one cave, and so loosely packed that we can actually begin to distinguish 
different, very short periods. Uh, Stuart was referring to new techniques. One of the more amazing techniques that is now possible is we can actually approximately date single sand grains, and that is helping us with these kinds of things. So what can archaeology contribute? It can contribute an evolution of the terrestrial environment over the very long-term time that takes humans into account, but also animals, plants, and everything else. It can also help us with understanding the evolution of human behavior, and that is what a lot of this talk is going to be about. And then finally, it allows us to downscale from global to regional, and that is one of the biggest problems that the sustainability science right now has, coming as it does out of climate science, which is essentially global. And we have a lot of work to do to convince people, and IPCC is doing that, for example, uh, to convince people to actually start looking at the regional scale. Because in the end, the adaptations have to be done at the regional scale. They can't be done at the global scale. Now, the archaeological uh, record is the only one, in my mind, that can do these things. Partly because it is not a written history, so it is not the bias of individuals. It is omnipresent all over the world, and it integrates a very wide range of sources. On the other hand, as Stuart said, it is very difficult to interpret. And our ad added problem is, and he didn't say that, he left that to me to say, and I will do it with quite a strong feeling about it, we destroy all the evidence that we don't already know. When we go out into the field, we recognize things. Those things that we recognize, we preserve or we record. Those things that we don't recognize, we don't know about, and we destroy them. And so we have a very slow proof cycle in archaeology. And because of that, a lot of archaeological evidence, and my talk will suffer from that in a major way, is actually based on getting the most coherent picture together rather than necessarily saying, well, this is the truth. That also, for me personally, is a great privilege because it allows me to roam much freer in my thinking about these things than some of my colleagues can do. But that is another story. Now, these hockey stick curves, as the ones that Will Stefan published, the ones that show this very rapid acceleration, they pose us, as archaeologists, a couple of questions. On the one hand, this covers the last couple of centuries. Now, why did it take us millions of years as a species to come to this particular point? And once we got there, why did it then go so fast? And then finally, and I've left that for the last, what is it? We don't know. What I'm going to try and defend here today is that it is not the climate or the environment, but that it all hinges on the innovative capacity of society. And so I'm going to try and take you through the evolution of human cognition and innovation and outline a number of the crucial transformations that have happened over long-term time in the way humans interact with their environment. So the question there is, what is different about humans that they can develop such complex technologies as we're currently doing? And the first question that you then get when you think about humans who are both biological beings and social beings, 
is what are the enabling factors? Are they biological or are they essentially sociocultural? Now, where I'm going back to is a particular concept that is the short-term working memory. That is the sense that in our minds we can bring together, when we are thinking or doing, a limited set of informations that we can manipulate, transform, do all kinds of things to, but it is very, very limited. The difficulty, of course, for archaeologists is that this is very, very difficult to document because what do we have? We have skulls, we have skull sizes, but we don't really have any ancient evidence on the evolution of that short-term working memory, so I'm going to have to approach that in two different ways. I'm on the one hand going to compare in the way of direct evidence the size of the short-term working memory of primates and that of human beings. And I'm also going to follow on the next couple of slides a two lines of indirect argument that help us corroborate this particular part of the story, which is the first part and the biological part of the story. What we know from many experiments, whether it's Franz de Waal or others observing them in, uh, in captivity or in the wild, we know that chimpanzees can crack nuts. And that, that involves essentially three objects, an anvil, a nut, and a hammer. But we also know that there is only about 75% of the chimpanzees that can actually learn to do this. And the conclusion of the people who are doing this research in much more detail than I will ever be able to do is that that short-term working memory that they have is essentially two plus or minus one. That is, the best can indeed deal with three objects, can manipulate those in ways they want, but some of them can't, and those have only two objects. There are a number of other tests, and I don't want to go into those now, that point in the same direction. Ways in which you can combine, combine, combine tokens, ways in which you can get them to manipulate objects, to combine gestures, and so on and so forth. Another line of research argues that the short-term working memory of modern humans is actually a factor seven plus or minus two. Now let's look at the indirect evidence. This is also, by the way, I should say, the human evidence is also based on experiments, on the number of things that you can actually juggle at the same time. Let's look at the indirect evidence. Um, what we know is that chimpanzees achieve that maximum short-term working memory at an age of two or three years old, uh, between 36 and 48 months. We also know that humans, when they're four or five, can actually deal with three objects, everybody. What is, this graph shows is a projection over the first, uh, the first 14 years of human existence of what that growth, if we assume that it is linear, will actually let us see that we then have, at the age of about 14, that working memory of seven plus or minus two. So this is not a corroboration, but it helps to understand a little bit what is going on. We have to make two assumptions. On the one hand, that the development is linear through the age, the, the beginnings of 
an animal or a human's life. And secondly, that it actually stops with adolescence. The age of two or three is adolescence for a chimpanzee. For humans, it is, let's say, 13 or 14. So, another way in which we can begin to look at that is to calculate the size of the brain relative to the size of the body. And that is what is called the encephalization quotient. That is, what is the relative growth of the body, uh, of, the, of the head, respective to the actual body. And that is what is being put on this particular graph. On the right-hand side, we look at essentially six and a half million years ago. And we assume that chimpanzees at that time had essentially the same working memory and the same brain size as they do now, and we have some skeletons to actually uh, affirm that. When you move towards the left, you actually move with time, and you see uh, these bars that are essentially il uh, illustrating where in time we actually, for the first time, have evidence of more than a factor two of manipulability in the various proto-humans and humans that we have the evolution of. The triangles and the blue dots and the two rec uh, rectangles are different people's evidence uh, about when these particular subspecies actually are found and that is what we're now getting onto with the next slide. Because what I'm going to do next, oh no, one slide in between. So we have this evolution of what is essentially cognitive capacity. We see over that whole period a huge variability in climate, but we don't see any major changes in what people can do, and I'll show you that in a moment. So the question then is, why is that so? Why, if climate change was so dramatic, cultural change was actually minimal over that whole long period. And my argument there is that the size of the short-term working memory actually for that period constrains the cognitive complexity of early artifacts. And what I'm going to do in the next few slides is show you how we can begin to trace how proto-humans and early humans have actually bent their mind around the concepts necessary to begin to make three-dimensional tools. And that is a long story. That is a story that took several million years. The simplest conception of an artifact is essentially a combination of geometric and topological properties. And what I will show you in a moment is an older one chopper. And what you can see there is that there is a line of little chips that were taken off a piece of stone and that that is actually the earliest evidence that we have of something that is aligned. So the cognitive complexity of stone tool conception seems to me to be an indicator for short-term working memory development. And you can make similar arguments for all kinds of other parts of human development. Let me now very briefly first give you an overview of the various kinds of activities that we can see in the stone. 
and you should look at the column concept, which is the second column from the left, where we begin, um, let's say, in stage three, uh, to look at the fact that people were able, or whatever they were called in those days, were able to take one little flake off a piece of stone. That demanded, indeed, three different things, because it demanded the stone with which you hit, the stone that you hold, and the cognition of the angle with which you can actually hold, uh, hit that stone so that the flake comes off. That incident angle has to be less than 90 degrees. On the right-hand side, you actually see in the red column that that is the stage three of that short-term working memory evolution. And we have the tools in this particular case in a site called Lokalalai in East Africa where we find the evidence for this. What we begin to see then, much later, is that people do this repeatedly. And initially, that repetition is simply repeating the same act. But in a second stage, that repetition becomes a goal-oriented, coordinated activity in which there is actually a strategy involved. Those are the two stages that I've here called flaking and making an edge. What then happens is that you get an edge, and when you make the edge complete, you actually have encircled a surface. And what we see then is that initially in the stone tool manufacture, what happens is that you get the edge first, and then people take off the surface, and then later they take off the surface first and then start working on the edge. Now that reversibility proves that conceptually they actually distinguish between the two dimensions, the single dimension line and the two-dimensional surface. In the next stage, we actually see this again in three dimensions. And I'm jumping a few stages here to get down at the bottom, which is stage number seven, where we actually start working completely in three dimensions. Let me now illustrate this with a few examples of stone tools. Right here. On top, you basically see dimension zero, the point. Then dimension one, the line. You basically have an edge. The second dimension is the surface, and I just talked about that. And the third dimension, finally, we get to the volume. In order to get there, much, 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 much later, we actually get a procedure that distinguishes between a surface there, a surface there, and a surface here. That is the only way you can explain that these particular tools were being made. Now, that is an interesting sort of thing because it allows us to follow through time what the evolution of the capacity of humans to begin conceiving in three dimensions, how that evolves. Of course, all that time, they dealt with objects that had three dimensions, but they were not cognized dimensions. And what I'm talking here about is the evolution of cognition. Here you have some of the earliest examples on the left-hand side, a cleaver from Olderwey, which is one and a half million years old, where you basically have a couple of flakes removed on the side, and that creates the cleaver. On the right-hand side, you see the next stage, which is already a lot better, where the edges have been worked all around, or to a large part around, and where the object, therefore, gets a lot more shape. A particular critical stage is what 
technically we call the Levallois technique, and that points to something else. It points to the fact that if you want to start making objects in series, you want to find ways so that taking off one object, one flake, prepares for the next. And so people are beginning to learn that, and they do that by actually conceiving of a stone as two halves or two parts, and working on those two parts alternately so that they can actually get into that kind of con uh, continuous uh, activity. This is the result. And what you see here is, of course, that through time, we gain a huge amount of control over the objects that we actually make. You can have only to compare the Alderman chopper and the Solutrean blade to see how much of that control we are getting. But you have to remember that that takes actually uh, about a million and a half years to get there. And it is my contention that that process, by the time we come to the Solutrean blade, let's say, has achieved the capability of seven factors in our short-term working memory. And that from that moment on, we actually don't, haven't, from then till now, which is only a relatively limited amount of time of, let's say, 150,000, maybe 200,000 years, we haven't really evolved that biological capacity anymore. But then we haven't had to, because by the time you have the possibility to deal with seven factors, the combinatorics are such that you can actually deal with a huge number of different things. So biology is no longer a constraint. What then becomes the constraint is to, to, to extricate experimentally and by thinking and by working different conceptual tools with which we can actually begin to build more and more com uh, complicated objects. So what we see at that moment, and that is from about 50,000 BC onward, we see an explosion of new operations. So there is no longer a constraint. We can do, for that moment at least, a very wide range of things. Now, what happens at that moment? My basic theory is that from that time onward, we see a feedback loop in information processing. And I am very deliberately, therefore, arguing that not only our society is an information society, but that every society in the past and in the present is essentially an information society. And that what determines the growth through time of the demographics, the technology, and everything else is that feedback loop between being more innovative, coming up with more concepts, being able to do more things, because of that, encountering also more and more challenges, having, after a certain moment, no longer the capability to deal with those with a very small group of people, so assimilating a larger and larger group of people. And that is the sort of process that from that time, let's say 50,000 BC onwards, I'm actually talking about. And that then leads to major social transformations. And let's very briefly summarize what is available, and I have not pointed to all of them, conceptually around 50,000 years BC, BP. On the one hand, we can distinguish between reality and conceptions, between the objects and our ideas about the objects. We can categorize based on similarities and differences. 
we feed back, we feed forward, we anticipate, and that to my mind is a very much underplayed element in this whole story, and we can actually reverse between looking backward and looking forward. So we can develop memory and control loops. We can, generally, we can generate mentally events that could be different because we are basically able to deal with choices. We have options and we realize certain options and leave others untouched. We also hierarchize. We hierarchize between zero, one, two, and three dimensions, but we hierarchize in size, and I'll show you some examples of that in a moment. We also are able to distinguish parts from a whole and in different ways. That is what I have here called partonomies. Basically, one of the things that we see in this whole story is that initially people, or whatever you call them, go for these very large stones that are the cores and they take things off to create the shape they want. But at the time, around 50,000, they inverse that process and what they're doing is they use the flakes that they take off and they throw away the core. So that difference is also one that we can de uh, demonstrate. And then finally, we begin to see more and more complex ways in which the stages of production are actually intertwined because when you make something, each step also has consequences for later ones. And sometimes, in order to get the product, you have to reason back from the later ones to the earlier ones, and that begins to be possible. Another thing that we can do by that point is reduce dimensions. We can picture, make pictures, paintings, of three-dimensional objects and actually depict them in a realistic way in two dimensions. Now, how did all these people for this whole Pleistocene essentially survive? On the one hand, by not investing in the environment, by only harvesting what comes out of the environment, by following a multi-resource strategy, and if things didn't work out in one place anymore, simply moving somewhere else, so adapting to change in a spatial way, and I'll get back to that later on, because one of our problems is that we can't do that anymore. And also by systematically staying below the environment's carrying capacity. One of the interesting data that we have from Australia is that the only place in Australia where people systematically have famines in prehistory is in the lush forests of the Murray and Darling Rivers, because there people were lured into the idea that they could actually have more and more people, and then they get tapped on by uh, famines. In the very sparse areas of Australia, you never have any famine, any trace of famine. We find famines in the bones, and that is why I can talk about that. The other thing is that people did not know how to interact with the environment. They only reacted to it. So the environment was essentially left alone. Change and risk were imminent all the time, every minute of the day. But because they were, there was no accumulation of risks, and I'll get back to that later on. People did, to some extent, choose locations where they minimized change. For example, and this is something that applies to this region where you're living, but we find in Greece that prehistoric people at the end of the Paleolithic choose the tectonically very active areas and why do they choose them? Because those are the areas where nature itself puts itself regu regularly back to stage zero, where there is no long-term change because that is interrupted all the time 
by the tectonics. These are some of the tools that come out of that phase. And when you compare with earlier images, you can see they become much smaller. They become composite, like at the top right-hand image. They be you get, with the Neolithic, complete control over shape by first taking off large flakes, smaller and smaller and smaller, and then finally grinding it so that you take out individual grains, and that gets you complete control over shape. And at the same time, what you begin to get is things like basketry. And I have given here the examples of a fish trap and some reconstructed basketry. What is interesting there is that we start from the small. We start from the single fiber or the single twig. And we first make them into long one-dimensional things. And then we make them into two-dimensional things by weaving them or in another way combining them. So those scales are things that are normally operated. Around 10,000, that control over shape then is complete. But we also see interesting things, like, for example, that fish trap, but also pottery that gets introduced at that time. We see, for the first time, a completely different topology. We see a topology of a solid around a void. That, up to that moment, all the objects are solids, but they're never a solid that has a shape around a void. That means that by that point, we have a tangled hierarchy of concepts, surface that defines a volume and that is defined by yet another volume. So we begin to stretch that mentally, as it were. We also begin to invert the sequence of manufacturing. One of the real problems with stone tools is, once you make a wrong blow, you have blown it and you have to start over again. You can't correct by the time you begin to create your two- and three-dimensional objects from the little pieces to the big pieces, you can actually correct. And so you have a much better chance of coming to an end result. And that happens with clay, but that happens with basketry, that happens with weaving. And at the same time, and pottery is there a very good example, you actually stretch temporal sequences. I need to hurry a little bit because we're going a little bit slow. Now let's look at the next phase, that is these last 10,000 years. We all think about climate, but we very often don't realize that that period is an incredibly stable period compared to the earlier periods that we have talked about. And that leads then also, if you combine it with the changes that are happening there, to an interesting question, is climate the driver or is climate the enabler? What we see with the Neolithic is people start settling down. They start uh, doing agriculture. They start raising animals. They have all these new technologies. They begin to live in villages. They begin to live in larger groups. And they get a different perception of space and time. One of the interesting things out of the Australian data, and in particular the story about the song lines, is that there, time and space are actually intertwined in a very interesting way. Every individual learns certain songs, but those songs only get a sense when that person goes through the space that they describe. And so there is a feedback between the spatial and the temporal. There is not a two-dimensional map in their head. It's a one-dimensional map, and it's a one-dimensional map that is hung on to time, which is very different from what we do later on. If you look at a book like Hugh Brody's on how 
in areas where there is no maps, people actually define their territories, it is very much a two-dimensional sort of pattern. A crucial difference here is that people go from harvesting the environment to investing in the environment. People start taking out forests, burning down the stuff that remains after they've cut down the trees, planting, harvesting, all of that is a longer time frame. So time is something that is beginning to get conquered. Now, mobility at that point drops out, at least to some extent, as the way to meet challenges. And the question that we've always been told is, well, that is because of the Neolithic. There was some sort of progress idea that that meant that we could finally do those sorts of things. My sense of it is that that mobile system could have continued until the present day and that it would have been fantastic in the Neolithic because it would have been a lot easier in some ways. So the question then is, what drives that change from the Pleistocene to the Neolithic, and my sense of it is that that is the conceptual, the cognitive, rather than anything else. These are some of the images that go with this. You see the villages, you see Stonehenge, you see the Neolithic plowing. We have the traces of the plowing, and we have the plows as well. We suddenly also begin to see three-dimensional art objects, which is a very different story from what we had before. These are some other images of, of villages, particularly to show you that they can be very, very different depending on the climate. If you compare Scarabray in the Orkneys with Chatalhuyuk in Turkey, you can see how different that is. But what did it do? It changed the dynamic with the environment and climate. It is now no longer only people responding or harvesting things that are done in the environment, people actually impact on the environment. And we will see in a little while that there are instances where we can actually see that impact. We intervene more and more in nature. We try and control our en environmental risks by simplifying our environment. For example, by extricating from the wild an area in which we do agriculture over which we actually have control. We diversify spatially and technically. And as the system, of course, integrates, it also becomes more vulnerable to all kinds of disturbances. So the emphasis shifts to problem solving. And that is part of that feedback loop that I outlined earlier on. And as part of that, we see people diversifying in particular challenges, particular problems, and we see larger and larger interactive groups. It's the beginnings of people really dedicating the time it needs to deal with specific issues. The cost of it, of course, is growing social complexity, and that means more conflict, and you have to find ways to begin to deal with that conflict. And now we come to the next step, which is, for me, what I would call the sort of the second revolution, which is the origins of cities. And Stuart and I talked about this a little bit beforehand. I'm going to try and argue that urbanization is not, as it has been seen for a long time, a way to be more efficient, at least not in energy terms. Once you get over a certain threshold of size of the population, it means that you have to get your food so far away, your footprint becomes so large, that it becomes actually, from an energy perspective, very uneconomical to do that. So my point here is 
that it is, again, the need to make a more efficient way of dealing with the information processing that brings people together. By bringing them closer together, communication is made a lot more efficient. People get more direct contact, more intense contact. And that means that ultimately there is a possibility to innovate more effectively in the city than there is outside. And what is happening at that point, to my mind at least, is that you get a sort of flow structure in which from the city, organization goes outward, new ideas or uh, innovations go outward, and once they are outward, they facilitate the bringing inside into the city the energy that is necessary to feed all the people that are there. But for those kinds of structures, dynamic structures, to survive basically means that innovation becomes a permanently necessary thing. Because otherwise, people at the periphery, after a little while, are no longer interested in participating in this whole game. The other side of that is that, of course, by bringing an invention in a city where there are people with very many different perspectives, we also see that that invention suddenly gets enriched by being in a much lighter, larger cognitive sphere, and therefore the possibility that it will actually take off is enhanced. One of the interesting things about cities is that they emerge in clusters. And I've given you here some examples, whether it's Etruria or the Maya. And other things that happen at the same time, but that are important to understand this, are the capability of counting, the capability of writing. What you have on the left-hand side at the top are tokens. Tokens that, according to a colleague, Denise Schmalt-Besserat, uh, are the antecedents of actually the first tablets and the first writing because they signify an animal or an object and they are given to somebody who transports that object as a sign that that is what it is. So they're also counters in a sense. Ultimately, that leads to making impressions from those objects in the tablets. In the Maya area, it's done differently. In the Peruvian area, on the right hand low, below, it's done differently yet again. But what we see in every case is there is a need to have a material means to carry across time and space certain symbols that say something about what is going on in the society. At the same time, once we get people together, we need to solve conflicts, we need to do administration, and what we see on the left-hand side is the famous column of the laws of Hammurabi. At the top, we see a clay tablet in cuneiform that is here symbolizes the fact that you get a bureaucracy, and below that, the Egyptian scribe does the same thing. And on the right-hand side, you see an actual archive that was excavated in Syria about 30 years ago. So those are aspects that occur at the same time, and that, to, me, to my mind, are very much part of that transition. They would not have been there if you hadn't had people in the cities together. The next revolution is that this same thing happens on a much larger scale, and that is what I've called here the imperial revolution. When cities get up and running and attract more and more people, more and more energy is needed. So that has to come from further and further away. And ultimately, that comes from so far away that it comes across cultural boundaries, across linguistic boundaries.
And that is only possible for a particular reason that I will uh, mention in a moment. When there is in those areas to which the power of the city expands treasure that can be taken in and that can actually pay for the act of extending the empire. One of the beautiful arguments launched by a colleague here in the United States that I appreciate a lot, Joseph Tainter, is that the Roman Empire was only able sort of to spread on the back of an earlier phase in which organization had spread and treasure was accumulated and that as soon as the Romans could no longer find new treasure, the empire actually started getting into trouble. Um, part of that process is, of course, that power to do things becomes power over. Control becomes important. Institutions, formal institutions, and their roles. From conflict resolution, we get to the stage of resource and people management. Roads and communication become important. And that is what this slide is all about. The, the left-hand side shows the expansion of the Roman Empire through time. And the right-hand side shows the huge network of roads that are another component of this need to communicate more efficiently and to exchange more information that spread over the empire. Now, the first moment that we have actual anthropogenic climate change is in that Roman period, and it's not on a global scale. This graph shows a whole series of ways of registering climate change that relate either to the polar ice caps or to the atmosphere, that are truly global. The only one at the bottom, the black one, is a regional one, and it is based on erosion of soil. And there we see suddenly a peak in the second century AD that doesn't appear on a global scale. And so we actually argue that that is the result of human intervention because the Romans at that point institute what I can only call a sort of proto-agro-industry -agro all over uh, the empire to feed people in Rome. This is the collapse. As soon as there is no longer treasure to be had, the Romans get to the edge of the empire, the Rhine, the Danube, the desert in the south. And it's very interesting to hear Caesar complain when he gets to Belgium. I am a very good soldier. I do a lot of fighting, but I'm useless here because there are no things that I can conquer. There are no armies that I can conquer. There are no cities that I can destroy. There is non-organization, and so I cannot do anything here anymore. What you see at the same time, uh, on the right-hand side here, is that once that stage has been reached, that there is no new treasure to be found, you see by the devaluation of the, the debasement of the Roman coins, how actually the inflation must go very, very quickly, very high up. And ultimately, by the end of the empire, we find that local entities detach themselves from the empire. And how do we find that? We have a fantastic source in the south of France. You may have seen the Pont du Gard, which is this fantastic Roman aqueduct. Well, if you look inside it and you analyze the, carbon, uh, the calcium carbonate that is deposed by the water on the edges, you can do that sort of by periods of 20, 30 years. And you see that from the third century onward, the water becomes actually very dirty. You see that people start tapping it out of the 
aqueduct for their own latifundia so that the city no longer controls even its own hinterland. That, to my mind, is how things go until around 1800. By 1800, with the Industrial Revolution, we've actually temporarily solved the energy constraint. We begin to use fossil energy. And when we do that, innovation explodes. And very quickly, we, our societies become dependent on innovation. And that is where we are now. Innovation becomes endemic. You could say, because that is a word that has recently been used a lot in the financial crisis, that innovation is the biggest Ponzi scheme of all. Because you have to keep going and going and going and going faster. Otherwise, it won't work. And that is where we are at this particular point. And on the, right hand, uh, the left-hand side here, you see actually how the energy needs and the energy use hugely expands. We use in our society about a, a 10,000 watts per person. A human being needs 100 watts. The other 99 times 100 watts actually go in maintaining our society and our material culture. Okay, what is the underlying pattern? And I have to go fast on this, but I just want to basically say that once the biological constraints to innovation have been overcome, we see innovations leading to challenges, leading to innovations. Humans overcome every major hurdle every time, but they do so by very fundamentally changing their society and how they're actually organized. How is that dynamic driven? And to my mind, it is driven between, by a tangled hierarchy between two perceptions of the relationship between society and environment. And I'm getting to that in the next slide. Based on the work of people like Kahneman and the, the Stanford School, we know that there is a relationship between the direction of a comparison, whether it starts with a subject towards a referent or the other way around, that determines whether we stress in a comparison, in a categorization, similarity or dissimilarity. As a result, we find, and we have documents in, in, in ethnography, that certain Categories can be open, that is, we know what may be part of them, but we don't know yet what won't be part of them, whereas at a later stage, when that comparison has also turned in the other direction, we actually close the category and then we know what is in it and what is not in it. Apply that to the environment and think about it, and I have taken these two French words, milieu and environnement, because they're both still actively used in the language. In the case of milieu, humanity is compared to nature. The cohesion of nature, its unknown aspects, and its strangeness and force are amplified. The confusion and the handicaps of humanity are accentuated. Humanity is passive in a natural environment that is active and aggressive. Change is attributed to nature, and people have no other cho choice but to adapt to that. So... Natural changes tend to be viewed as dangerous because they're beyond the control of humanity. Now look at the other perspective that inverts the two, the society and the environment, and there nature is compared to humanity. The cohesion and the strength of nature are diminished and its known aspects are emphasized. 
the cohesion and strength are accentuated in humanity. Humanity is active and aggressive in a natural environment that is passive. Humanity tends to be viewed as the source of all change, people as creating their environment. And over the last 50 years, we've actually gone to both those stages. But right now, we're at a point where we're beginning to look at their interaction. And the interesting thing to my mind is that these two opposite perspectives reinforce each other in one particular way. That natural dangers are exaggerated and those of human intervention are systematically underplayed and undervalued. So that we intervene more and more in our natural environment because we think that we thereby reduce our risks. But what we don't know and we don't realize is that we're also only changing the spectrum of risks. We're not in any way reducing the risks. So ultimately, society loses control because the more it transforms its surroundings, the less it understands them. That leads, and this is a, a known fact, for example, that we have studied at length all across the Mediterranean, that complex ecological systems consist of hierarchies of dynamics on all kinds of scales. That the faster dynamics take control over the slower ones, and usually these faster ones are the human ones. But ultimately, there is a role reversal between the two. The human dynamics that are rapid, but initially didn't have much impact because nature dominated very much, begin to control the slower natural dynamics that are more encompassing. So what happens is that ultimately, and this is Israeli colleagues have studied this in great depth, that landscapes become what we call disturbance dependent. They become dependent on humans to actually be maintained as they are. And finally, talking back on that risk spectrum, any society's risk spectrum shifts over time with respect to its environment. Because what we do is we overemphasize the frequent risks that we see regularly. We do something about them. We reduce them. We take out those frequent risks. And we substitute by our actions into the environment completely new, completely unknown risks of much larger, at least some of them, of much larger temporalities. And so ultimately what I think you see is that you get a risk barrier by analogy to a sound barrier. You get a buildup of risks that ultimately creates a collapse. Okay, I think uh, I would then summarize. At some point, any socio-environmental system will go out of control because those dynamics that I've just outlined are irreversible. What points in that direction? The appropriation of nature, the human perception of the relationship between people and the environment, the risk perception, and the relation between cognition and action, which I have not really gone into here, but I can do that in the discussion if you want. The effects are that the system pushes itself into a trap, that short-term solutions create long-term problems, that the cost of problem solving goes up, flexibility goes down, we get a number of those time bombs, and then the real question is the outcome at the end of, for example, the Roman Empire and how far is the way it ended already included in the way it was started. That is, in how our perception of our environment has exploited that environment and by exploiting it has created the weaknesses that we get confronted with at the end. And now the, this is really the last slide. This is then... We are now at a completely new stage. 
for the first time, we're beginning to get control over information itself. We have control over energy. We have control over matter. We are facing an incredible transformation in the next 50 years in nanotechnology, biotechnology, and what have you. In order to shape our future, we must first of all, and this is, I think, the main thrust of my argument here, understand the process of innovation itself. What we don't know is how we relate our perspective on the past, our lessons from the past, to the future in a scientific and coherent way. And that is something we can discuss later in the discussion a bit more in detail. I have some ideas about it. But it has to do with the fact that because we have this limited short-time working memory, we basically cannot handle the total complexity of the phenomena, whether they're past or future. For the past, we get out of that by creating a narrative that tells us how the past was and that can be changed, as archaeologists do, at every occasion. If we look towards the future... We don't do that. We set out a path and then simply say, well, it has such and such a probability. We need to get into that dynamic if we're going to be able to solve some of these things. And I do believe that modern information technology can actually help us with that in some ways. Um, and then in the end, of course, if we manage this, we will actually have to adapt our social structures, our institutions, to this much better use of innovation. Because in the end, it is the rampant innovation of the last two centuries that has led us to the crisis where we currently are. Thank you very much. Yeah, to you, however you want. Thank you, Sandra. Um, I had a couple of questions as we were going along the way, and then I'll catch up with some of the questions coming from the audience. One was uh, you, you had a picture of Jericho, yeah. um, great Neolithic town, 10,000 years plus old, I guess, in some yeah. sense continuously occupied, or that area has mm -hmm. been ever since. In the middle of the Jericho Tell, yeah. there's the stub of a tower. Yeah. The stub is 30 feet high. Mm -hmm. The diameter of that stub is 30 feet across. Right. What the hell were those people up to? I don't know. <laughs> was, this is one of the limits of archaeology. Yeah, there you I mean, go. When Kathleen Carrier dug that site, it was in a phase in which military interpretations were a very important part of the interpretations of what urbanism was all about. Mm -hmm. So she actually fell for that tower, and that is why Jericho has the name of being a town. If you compare it size-wise with a number of these other settlements, it's actually very small. It could also be a village. And we don't know. We honestly don't know. And there was associated with the wall. Were they walling something in or walling something out? I think they probably were. I think in every situation, you get defense. There's no question about that, whether it's a village, whether it's a town. But I don't believe that defense itself is enough of an argument mm -hmm. to actually build a town or to start sort of living in a particular way. I know that this is a very cogent and very often used argument in archaeology, but I don't believe it. And I give you an, a wonderful example. The Mont Beuvray in France, they had this huge hill, and they began digging, and they dug this fantastic gate. And 20 yards beyond the gate, the wall stops. The gate is entirely symbolic, and so is the wall. 
It is to impress people as they come in on the road. I'm just saying that because I think we have to be extremely careful. I'm very much a skeptic on well, What if they were building data. a wall and they just ran out of funds? No. That happens a lot. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. <laughs> <laughs> what they have done instead, actually, build an earthen bank uh, all around. So right. I don't think it's that okay. <laughs> but to give you a sense, I'm really a skeptic on those kinds of interpretations because they're ad hoc particular interpretations sure. in particular instances. And what we have to deal with here, and why I have made the argument as I have, is because we are dealing with a universal phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it has variables, how it happens in one place or happens in another place. But the process itself, to my mind, that drives it is still this one. Another thing that, that yeah. developed in the process um, as we're getting toward bigger cities and mm -hmm. agglomerations of cities, which itself is interesting, and then on toward Empire, at a certain point, you have um, sort of civil servants or some kind of bureaucracy in mm -hmm. the accounting and stuff. Yeah. And archives. Yes. What the hell is the use of an archive? It is the, either the priestly caste or the powers that be that document every trade transaction with a distant area. We have thousands of tablets in those archives. Why would they keep that more than a year or two? That I don't tell you. It's a very interesting IRS, question. No. <laughs> that is one way to, to when, answer Once you it. become an empire, then, yeah. The, but another thing you can basically say is that their perception of time is a very different one. And that we are in a short-term thinking society. And that a number of those societies, actually, I think, were thinking much more long-term than we are. And that's why you need to ask the question, why do we throw it away? Rather than ask them why they keep it. Yeah. So these societies had stories themselves, yeah. sort of quasi-history and songs yeah. and, and song lines and the rest of it. What was in the archives? Was that part of this kind of longitudinal self-identification of these no. societies? Mainly think? accounting, pro, um, mediation in conflicts, adjudication of conflicts, those kinds of things. To the point of so improving the law? Contracts. Is that case law building up? Yeah. In some ways you could say that. Huh. Okay. Alexander Rose just handed me a question by Alexander Rose. Yeah. <laughs> says, this seems to argue that our stable environment has made us less able to adapt. I think the climate environment. Yeah. Uh, will the coming changes in climate increase our uh, SW, STWM, short term? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. As Clearly, a culture, right? There, there is so is climate change good or bad for us? In terms of innovation. In terms of innovation. Let me answer it this way. I think it is the fact that there was a continual demand for change, which during the Pleistocene, apart from the biological factors, but I'm now talking towards the end of the Pleistocene when SCWM was no longer the actual limiting factor, has kept people on their toes permanently changing. And I think the big difference where we are now faced with is that we have invested so much that we can't change so easily anymore. And so that we can only innovate within the structure that we have created for ourselves. And that way we actually go from one technology to the next and we aggravate in the longer term the situation without being able to say, okay, let's break and let's do something else. And so I would argue that now to answer your final question, is climate change good or bad for us? 
I don't think it's bad for humanity. I think it's bad for our societies and our social structures. I think we will survive. I think we will find solutions for these problems, but there's going to be a huge amount of collateral damage. Was the fall of the Roman Empire a solution? No, it is. Mm -hmm. It's not a solution, it's not a problem. What happened is people moved away from the cities, mm -hmm. went rural, and survived that way. That's part of what interests me about that, is Rome fell, all the cities in Europe fell. No. What happened is ah. that after the 6th century, the backbone of the highly evolved urban system went, I don't know how many energy levels down and mm -hmm. how many demographic levels down, mm -hmm. but it actually remained in function. It was taken over by the church. Much lower population, yes. Much lower population, right. like a tenth or even less. What happened, though, is that the whole <laughs> rural situation completely collapsed. Right. And, what the, and we the agriculture see went down along with the arches. Everything. And a lot of know-how was lost. So? Uh, ceramic know-how, glass know-how, a whole bunch of know-how was lost. And what we see then is that from the 10th century, that builds itself up again, but in mm. different ways. Right. What we see is that the rural settlement pattern from the 10th century has nothing to do with the earlier, the Roman one, because people think differently about their landscape. Right. This is pretty scary because you're, you know, the, the, the city is the total keeper of yeah. everything at this yeah. point. You lose the city, you yeah. lose I everything agree. that it was I keeping. Agree. How does this relate to your current research, the recent research in Europe between city and, and town there? The city and, and, and rural areas. What, what we were sent out by the European Union, and the interesting thing about this is as much political as anything else, to begin to investigate why there were so many problems in agricultural policy in Southern Europe. And this was done first under the guise of desertification and we got rid of that, uh, actually, mm -hmm. anecdotally, very interestingly. It turns out that the English-speaking people and the French-speaking people understand such completely different things by that that you can't make it into any kind of reasonable argument. Um, but what happened then is we moved over the 10 years from desertification to the concept of land degradation, so it became a perceptual category. And ultimately, we realized that what came out as rural problems were essentially urban problems. Mm -hmm that were due to a different perception of what life was all about, that begin to attract people in the rural areas, and that shifted their decision-making from remaining on the land and practicing there to wanting to do something else. So the villages in that part of Europe are emptying out like everywhere yeah. else in the world. Yeah. What happens next in that sequence? What happens next in that sequence? It's, this is a very good exercise for me, I have to say, because <laughs> I'm too much of an archaeologist and not enough of a futurologist. I think ultimately what we'll find is that the city system will explode because one of the clear things about the current situation is that on the one hand we focus more and more on the urban, but on the other hand uh, urban is actually the most vulnerable part of our system because it brings the most people together. It was wonderful. After Katrina, the CEO of Munich Reinsurance came on television in this country and said, you know, the only way to avoid this is not build any cities anymore, because then we don't have any risks. This is a very interesting lesson. We live and we focus, because innovation has now become so important, uh -huh. on our urban systems. But in the same way, you can actually see that those urban systems 
have the most difficult energy problems and have the, the energy constraint there is, is major. And I, at one point, did an exercise which never got published wisely about how Phoenix would fall to pieces because that's where I live now. And so we started thinking about all the things that would be going wrong. I would guess water, one of the first mm-hmm. things that's going wrong mm-hmm. is that now, and it's actually happening right now, there's so many people that have left that we can't maintain the infrastructure anymore. Ah, the famous infrastructure problem. Yes, this is a very major problem there. We need to come around to that. There's a a good question from Ken Wilson. Mm -hmm. It says, uh, we seem to be stuck at the uh, 7 plus or minus 2, which goes back to Miller, or who was that back when? Among others, yes, but there's a whole bunch of people there. Um, Maybe this is not quite enough for us as a society. (laughs) These deeper long-term dynamics than entrap us. Uh, Can we... I mean, it, it stood us in good stead for the low yeah, these many yeah, yeah. tens of thousands of years. Is it time to move beyond 7 plus so. or minus 2? I think that is what our information technology has to do. I think we need well, to find ways. I thought you were drugs or something. But... No, no. <laughs> I, I do it with coffee. I, I very fundamentally believe that we need to start building models of how this process of reduction of dimensions actually goes, mm-hmm. what the weaknesses and the biases in it are, and see if we can, on the basis of that kind of work, begin to find models that help us think in more dimensions and therefore basically add to our capability, not biologically, but technically, uh, extra working memory. For people working together, say a good little work group, uh, capable of managing more than seven plus or minus two, and does that scale up? To some extent, but there is, of course, a loss factor, a major loss factor. Mm-hmm. And that expresses itself in the way, actually, particularly in hierarchical situations, how you begin to get, on the one hand, more efficiency, but less adaptability. Because hierarchical situations focus themselves much more in relatively fixed patterns as they lose their leaves, as routines take over. Mm-hmm. Whereas a market system, a distributed system, mm-hmm. actually has much less of that. But that has the problem that it can be much larger, but at the same time it has inefficiencies. So you begin to get all kinds of exchanges between those diff- two kinds of structures that battle it out essentially among others in urban systems. So the urban systems, and you're talking about the information processing basically, mm-hmm. we're talking about the story yeah. of information processing. Along comes the Internet. And uh, it seems to be, in your scheme, kind of like what happened in 1800. We suddenly mastered energy in a certain way. We now, I think you're saying mastering information. We're beginning to, yes. Beginning to master information in a certain way. The city experiment so far yeah. is kind of uh, the one level of mastering information in, yeah. a, in a compressed time-space mode. Internet seems to offer mastering information in a way that yeah. is not so compressed exactly. in space for sure yeah. and maybe not in time. That's right. Is this the bigger, better city? Is it replacing the city? What is it? What it will ultimately do, I don't know. But I do believe there is the possibility in there to at least lessen the stresses that our current focus on urban systems is actually creating because we can spread out more evenly. But we don't. No. People uh, you know, get exactly. bush connected by a cell phone to town, and then exactly. they follow this signal exactly. into town. But, so we have not made the mental switches that would actually enable that to be materialized. But they're rewarded for doing that. 
I think we could get them there, but I don't think we have done it yet. Interesting. Um, a question from Mel Mac McKay. Mackey? McKay? Uh, many sociobiological, sociobiologists cite the development of complex verbal languages, the key to human development. Um, where do you believe language and the ability to share learning with large groups fits into all this? I think it is a major part of it. Uh, it's only the part that, as an archaeologist, I have a really, really hard time demonstrating until the writing comes up. But it's clear that I think if you think uh, now just sort of polarizing between small groups of, let's say, 25 to 50 people, which is what hunter-gatherers are all about, they communicate by very many different signals, body language, eyes, uh, all kinds of emotional signals. Mm -hmm. As soon as you get larger groups, there is no longer the time for that. Mm -hmm. People start having more intermittent contacts. So one of the things that must happen is that language becomes more clear and concepts become clearer and it becomes easier to understand exactly what is meant. You lose a lot of nuance. And so I would argue that one of the functions of writing is not so much to communicate what you want, but to not communicate what you don't want. Because you don't give all these other signals anymore. You actually only put in writing that what you exactly want to say. And I think that's another function of writing that is happening at that moment. Well, this is why so many of us prefer to relate by email rather than uh, in person or by phone. <laughs> uh, you can pare it right down to what you can control. Hmm. What's the, head, the future of that, I wonder? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> we'll just whistle. The question, I, I've been yeah. book, book touring for this Holler's Discipline book, and oddly enough, the constant question I get, and I'll bet you get it too, is, well, gosh, Professor, are you optimistic or pessimistic based on your frame of everything? I get uh, everything? that every time. And I have a long debate right now in Italy about that. One of the great privileges of an anthropologist or archaeologist is that you look at it with such a distance that it is not your own society. And so for the human species, hmm. I am actually optimistic. I think we will find ultimately a kind of solution. At the same time, I think if I look at it from the perspective of my own society, that society will have to either fall by the wayside or be transformed in such a way that's unrecognizable. And that is what I meant earlier on when I said there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. Climate change or just the uh, sheer self-acceleration of innovation both. forces this? Absolutely both. I think the, the acceleration of innovation is a huge danger in the sense that it's also what helps us, but it's an interesting danger socially. We are going to get with the nanotechnology, the biotechnology, a narrower and narrower part of the population that actually knows what these technologies are all about. And because of that, we're going to get quite s some interesting social problems. That's not my experience with biotechnology, where young biotechnology hackers basically yeah, are you know, those generating are wild but, and crazy but stuff. But what about all these other people out there? That's what I'm talking about. I think there's going to be a disconnect between the groups that control this and okay. the groups that don't. Um, okay, remember the digital divide? Yeah. We used to go to conferences yeah. and people would fret yeah. and the last day would yeah. be getting all worked up about yeah. the digital divide. Those poor, poor people will yeah. never catch up with us yeah. people with our Apple computers. Okay. And then they got cell phones and they swept right on past yep. us. You're absolutely right. And that may happen again and mm -hmm. I wouldn't 
put it past them, to put it in a different way. But I do believe that what is very important in these kind of innovations is that each of them opens up for a particular window of time. And if we miss that window of time, then we're in trouble. If we actually work it within that window of time, we're fine. Then we can do the reorganization that is actually needed. I'm taking as an example the European Union, where it is mm. political. But there's two elements there. It's the agriculture. Interestingly enough, the agriculture policy was designed for Northern Europe, for the continuous plains. So you could devise a policy for, a policy for averages. In Southern Europe, the landscape is such that you have much more aberration than average, not mathematically speaking, but in the sense of landscape. And so one of the real stresses in Southern when, Europe... When the harvest will be really bad and another really good yeah, or regional? Much more up and down, okay. all kinds of regional differences that hmm. mean that those kinds of subsidized policies really don't work in this house. What you're getting there is that, and we see that very, very strongly in the last 15 years since 92, is this disaffectation with the policies that have been put in place, with the way the whole system works. That is, I think, one of the biggest reasons why there is such a huge slowdown in creating the European Union. And I see similar things that you could happen. Look, look at how uh, OGMs, uh, genetically modified organisms, mm -hmm. are being dealt with in Europe. Major, major problems at the level of the society. Mm -hmm. Very, very difficult to overcome. Mm -hmm. One of the real fears is that nanotechnology will come up against the same sort of problems. We're actually having a center at ASU that is beginning to study that. Uh, I'm not so sure that society can follow within But by what you're saying, if time. Europe becomes a sort of innovation backwater, yeah. uh, that's kind of a healthy way to go under the circumstances. Interesting. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a healthy way to go. I don't think there is, in that sense, that much of a sort of a value to be attached to it. What I'm basically arguing is it may be one of the solutions, but it'll have other kinds of consequences, whereas if you have it as it goes here in the United States, you will have different consequences, so the system is being driven apart. That's basically what I'm saying. Well, variability is supposedly good for evolution because sure. then you see which whatever, works and doesn't. So, let me raise yeah. a question. There's a fellow named Jeffrey West who just retired as president of Santa Fe Institute who's worked with Sander. And Jeff is the one who came up with this amazing realization that uh, cities basically create problems and then innovate faster than the problems they create. That's one of the reasons of the engines of innovation that Sander's been talking about. And that's the good news. You know, cities force innovation, they teach innovation to the world, to the regions around the rural areas, and then to, to each other in the world, and through the internet, the best practices swarm around very rapidly, and this is all a very happy story. Um, but the, and, and Jeffrey says, look, this has nothing to do with ideology or theory, it's there in the data. People in big cities work faster, think faster, act faster, move faster, adapt faster, innovate faster than in small cities, and there's a, a nice scale that's even super linear. The bigger they are, the super faster they go. Mm -hmm. So far, this is a happy story, all based on data. And then Jeffrey West says, uh, you keep getting new sets of innovations, which take off, and they're coming more and more rapidly, and pretty soon he's talking Ray Kurzweil's singularity, at which point his face falls. 
And he says, this is terrible. This is a self-limiting phenomenon. This is a situation in which we crash into something and a bad thing then happens. Now, my view is that he doesn't have any data at this part <laughs> of his worries. No. Do you share his worry and, and uh, what do you do with that worry if you have it? Because it seems to be a form of what you've just been no, describing. Yeah, We're innovating ourselves into unsolvable situations. What, what, what I'm basically saying is the more we, every innovation creates a cascade of new challenges. Right. The more innovations you do and the faster you do them, ah. the less time you actually have to begin to deal with that cascade. And so okay. ultimately, what is happening, that is different, very much so. And so, so you don't ultimately get to learn from mistakes, the mistakes add up and they take you down. Yeah. That's what I said about the shifting in the risk spectrum. Mm -hmm. By shifting towards the longer end and the unknown end, and I think that is one of the drivers why over a long culture like the Romans, you actually go from a long-term perspective to a short-term perspective because you get so many dimensions in which there are immediate problems that you start focusing on those and that you no longer can take the longer-term ones actually into account. So under, these, under that view... Europe is a much safer place to be than, say, China. China, China, China is addicted to innovation and is jamming China very, very has rapidly. huge problems. Uh, I was in China a couple of years ago at the request of the Chinese government as part of this uh, organization on, on the human dimensions of climate, of climate and environmental change. Hmm. And they gave us a special seminar about some of those problems. The fact that you have 300 million people, that is the whole population of the U.S., seasonally mobile between cities and countrysides. The fact that you have cities where industry is decrepit, like the old steel belt in the U.S., where there is a million immigrants a year. Mm -hmm. China is totally addicted, and China is going to run into a huge problem at some point, and they know it. That is why they keep their, their money low, because they need 8 or 10% increase in, in gross national product a year to actually be able to keep that more or less focused. Are there, is there any other culture that is aware of the problem that way? Because the U.S. has the same problem, but we don't yeah. seem to be aware of it that well, way. Well, I, I, what I admire about the Chinese is they have much longer-term thinking. Mm -hmm. If you see how they've dealt with Hong Kong, for example, how they're dealing with Taiwan without immediately pulling out the guns mm -hmm. and basically saying, okay, it'll take a century, but it'll happen anyway. Uh, <laughs> I think that's basically what is happening. I think they have a particular way of thinking about time, which is very, very different from ours, and it may end up that they will do the same thing as we're doing, and they'll end up ultimately having to deal with so many problems that it becomes much more short-term thinking. I'm not precluding that, but at the stage where they are right now, I admire them for their long-term long thinking. Complete shift of question. Yeah. Um, you've spent a lot of time with archaeology, including some in the field, mm -hmm. and you've watched the, the process of archaeology, the, the tools, the range of stuff that's going on, the various cultures that are doing their own archaeology now and on and on. Uh, the Long Now Foundation is attempting some archaeology of the future. Mm -hmm. And it raises the question of, you know, we, we ask archaeologists like you, uh, what, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if we Go are ahead. creating archaeology to bind future generations in the way that past archaeology helps bind us to, to them, 
to those past generations. What is the right way to do sort of to plant archaeology now? There is no right way. Okay. Because essentially what, what will happen is that in 500 years, they will want a narrative that is suited to, to their period and their time. Archaeologists, to my mind, are prophets turned backwards. That's fair. So are we, you're saying that we should give them lots of options to misunderstand what we're doing? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I want to take one, one other example here, which is something that has struck me, which occurred to me a long, long time ago. I had a PhD student in Cambridge from Papua New Guinea, from the Highlands. Hmm. And we had a debate about time on the one hand and about warfare on the other, but the time element is that I want to uh, highlight here. He basically says, you Westerners, I really don't understand you. You think that you stand with your face towards the future. You don't know the future, so you're standing with your back towards it. Mm -hmm. All you're trying to do is you're trying to keep some sort of a course going there that you actually calibrate on what you see in front of you, which is the past. So it's dead reckoning, not navigation. Yeah. And is he claiming that they do something different? No, that's, that's what his perspective is. He uh, says, we don't do that. It, their perspective is, you stand with your back towards the future, hmm, and I you see. actually do it that way. And that's a, a safer way to behave? No. Yeah, I don't think I'll so give either. you a wonderful example of how it went wrong. Mm -hmm. There's a, a tribe in the southern highlands called the Huli, who, like most of those tribes, actually lives on a ridge. Mm. And they, at one point, saw the environment changing. And from that perspective, to redress the fact that they were getting off course, as it were, going towards the future. What did they see changing? The something in the environment. Deforestation. Deforestation yeah. in particular. But I'll, mm. I'll get to that in a moment. Oh. So they go back to the past to see where things may have gone wrong. That demands a ceremony. The ceremony demands that you raise a lot of pigs right. and that you slaughter those pigs. Oops. So, ultimately, you have more and more pigs. The environment gets completely ruined by the uh, pigs. Yeah. That happens. And ultimately, the tribe ends up in the valley in the marsh that they have created themselves. They ran out of pigs. It's a similar thing happened at Easter Island when they're doing yeah. bigger and bigger statues until they ran out of trees to roll them on. And then uh, the anyway. statues were to prevent the climate change or the, the <laughs> landscape change that they yeah. So we don't do ceremonies. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we don't use uh, scarce materials. But what would you like to find in the, you know, dig down underneath that stub in Jericho with the tower? Yeah. What would you just love to find under there? Um, I mean, it's a tell, well, yeah, so there's no, layers and layers and layers, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think that I would go for what a lot of the archaeologists would go for, uh -huh. is try and find the oldest site or the origins. Hmm. What I would love to do is do the reverse and dismantle the tell to such a point that I can actually begin to look at how it built itself up. Mm -hmm. So reverse time and actually use a generative perspective on that tell rather than a perspective looking at the origins of something. Look, create uh, an ex-ante perspective on what is going on in the tell rather than do what most archaeologists do is actually look at it from an ex-post perspective.
I mean, dig, yeah. in a sense, dig from the bottom rather yeah. than from the top. Actually, the, the excavations that are done in, in Syria, we try to get around that problem by not digging like this, but by digging like this. A deep trench. Yes. And then yeah. No, not only, but digging the whole tell away the whole vertically. Thing. Wow rather than horizontally. All the way down to yes. pre-human. Yeah, and then through the whole tell. So that every time you actually can see where a layer and a period ends, when you do it from the top, you only see that's the, the beginning of something when you've gone through it. Right. And then you get into the problem of the destroying. The problem destroying exactly. the evidence you don't understand. So you did that. What did you learn yes. that was different? It, it is very different. You can actually come up with a much more coherent perspective on the dynamics that is going on in a particular tell. Now, of course, tell is a very small scale, so you, that will not tell me something about how a culture has changed. It will only tell me how that village has changed. But we had a lot more detail out of that than you would have in the other way. This suggests a plan going forward that I think climate change could help. The sea levels are mm -hmm. going to rise anyway. If New Orleans, instead of shipping its trash out of town, had kept it there and made itself a tell, rising on, on its own debris. Yeah. That's what they did in Holland for years. Yeah. Really? Of course. Well, there you are. <laughs> and then every once in a while, a house, a house would slide down <laughs> the mound, right. and you would have images where people put a rope around it and pulled it back up. <laughs> Literally, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I can see that the future is, as we have all suspected, Dutch. Thank you very much. <laughs> this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.